0: old school and my favorite interviews are with book authors book club with michael smirconish is now in session hey ellie honig spent 14 years as a federal and state prosecutor he is a cnn legal analyst as a matter of fact was a great guest of mine last saturday talking about the tyree nichols case he's also a rutgers university scholar i don't know what that means but it sounds impressive does it not most importantly for our purposes, he has just released Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Ellie, thank you so much for being here.
1: Michael, thank you for having me. Can I please explain the Rutgers title? I wish um, you would. I I, I I do not purport to be a scholar. The thing is, I'm not a professor either because I'm not on that academic tenure track. So I'm a teacher. So like, they, they won't just call me a teacher or, or a speaker or something, so... Sometimes they call me a scholar. It's ridiculous. I'm not a scholar. I I'm
0: sorry. That. On the on the jacket it says scholar. So scholar it must be. Hey Elliot,
1: what, <laughs> I guess what, it sounds better than just a guy. Yeah.
0: What timing you have? Because I, I'm reading the book just as the word comes that the Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has impaneled recently impaneled a grand jury, uh, trying to jumpstart you know an old look. At Donald Trump relative to Stormy Daniels. And in the first, particularly in the first quarter of the book, you speak extensively about exactly that fact pattern.
1: My jaw hit the floor when I saw this, Michael, because in the book, I give first time reporting on what happened inside the Justice Department. Now, that's federal prosecutors who looked at this hush money case back from 2018, really up through 2021, when Trump left office. And one of the questions that I, I have that everybody had that I think I answer in this book is how on earth did the Fed decide not to charge Donald Trump only to ever charge Michael Cohen? And in fact, it ends up there's even more sort of a, a favorable treatment that gets given to Donald Trump that I outline in the book. Um, I answer that question. And then here we are two years later after Trump leaves office and is not charged. And now the state prosecutors literally across the street from the Southern District of New York have decided they're going to look at this hush money scheme. Um, I have some questions about why they're looking at it now, this far after the fact. But I think if you look at the reporting that I have in that book, it, it gives a real interesting look at what happened inside the Justice Department, inside the Southern District of New York, and how they really, I think, failed to do the job on Donald Trump and gave him extra special treatment that allowed him to dodge that indictment, at least.
0: Well, he was regarded, and you talk about this, and you, you talk about why this word choice was, he was individual number one, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I have the whole story of how he became individual one Um, when the SDNY was getting ready to indict Michael Cohen in 2018. Trump was in office and under longstanding DOJ policy, DOJ could not indict or would not indict Donald Trump. So what happens in an indictment like that is you have to refer to other people. So they're drafting the Cohen indictment. The SDNY originally drafted an indictment that has never made it out the door that laid out chapter and verse on Donald Trump's central involvement in the hush money scheme made entirely clear that it was all for him all at his direction and basically that he was liable for it criminally and should be charged when he gets out of office well doj the main bosses down in in dc get wind of this indictment take a look at it and say all of that comes out we are not going to include all this information about donald trump he's not the one we're charging here and there's a heated a pitched battle Between the Southern District of New York, my old office, and the bosses at DOJ, Uh, ultimately we SDNY prosecutors are independent, but we are not anarchists, and we have to listen to the bosses. And the bosses take it out of there. And then there was the question. They do have a couple glancing mentions of Trump in the indictment, nothing too harmful. But DOJ was trying to figure out what do we call him because traditionally in an indictment – You don't give the actual names of anyone other than the the defendant. You give them some sort of generic label. They actually considered calling Donald Trump co-conspirator one, as I report in this book. They decided against it. At one point, DOJ uh, wanted to call him candidate one. Excuse me, at the SDNY wanted to call him candidate one, but DOJ said no. Even that's sort of too specific. Let's use individual one. And I should say, one of the people I spoke with at the SDNY said, we wanted to almost just as a, as a you know, a flip him the bird and just call him president one, just so it'll be really obvious who it was. Uh, but that's how he became individual one. He really dodged a bullet with that indictment.
0: With regard to the, the Michael Cohen sentencing memorandum, you write, on one hand, this yeah. was just about as clear a statement as possible that the SDNY believed Trump was part of and likely criminally liable for the scheme to make illegal hush money payments. You will not be surprised to hear, uh, Ellie, just because it's my irascible nature, that I came on air on Monday, I guess it was, Monday or Tuesday, Tuesday, after reading about Alvin Bragg and paneling this new grand jury, and I said, they better have more than this because... Yep. If when all is said and done after Fulton County and Merrick Garland and Alvin Bragg, if the only thing he gets indicted for is what will then be a seven-year-old uh, fact pattern for paying hush money to Stormy Daniels, I think Trump is going is to get a lot of fans saying it really is a witch hunt. Uh, first of all, I, react yep, to that.
1: I agree with you. I completely agree with you. And, and uh, perversely, part of the reason the Southern District in 2021... When Trump was about to leave office, they decide, they now had to grapple with the question, well, now do we indict him? Now he's indictable. Now he's no longer going to be president. And I report for the first time in this book that there was a series of meetings within the Southern District of New York where they wrestled with that exact question. We know the outcome. We know he was not charged. Um, and part of the reason they made that decision really was they felt like, well, so many other things have happened since then, so many bigger things. They're, they're just weeks after January 6th. They figure – This is like ace on the list of his offenses at this point. Um, And the other big reason was they had some questions about the evidence. Now, the prosecutors, what I thought was really interesting, and I reveal this in the book, generally speaking, the prosecution team felt that in a vacuum they had enough evidence to indict Donald Trump. Some felt it was close to the line, but indictable. Others felt that they had more than enough. But they looked at the political danger. They looked at, like I said, the fact that there was other more serious crimes And they backed off, which to me is actually sort of contrary to what I was always taught at the Southern District of New York, which is we're here to take on the biggest bosses. And we often did. But when it came to Trump, they took a pass. Now, Michael Cohen is very interesting because it does look like the D.A. is banking on Michael Cohen. We have to note, though, the Southern District of New York rejected Michael Cohen. They wrote in this very same sentencing memo that you referenced, they wrote that Michael Cohen, while he did provide some information, was not fully forthcoming. And therefore, he's not a quote unquote cooperator. Can, so
0: right. Can I, can I, I interrupt and say? Different conclusion. Yeah. Can I interrupt and say what, what I learned from you is that you say the SDNY is all or nothing with a cooperating oh, yeah. witness or defendant, meaning you got to tell us not only everything about your wrongdoing, but the wrongdoing of anyone else that you're aware of. And that's where he fell short, right?
1: Absolutely. We used to say to cooperators, You're going to tell me every single thing you did wrong, starting from the time when you were 12 years old and stole a candy bar from the bodega. And they have to admit all that. They have to plead guilty to it. And that's exactly where, in the SDNY's view, Cohen went off the board. He denies it. He, to this day, says he told them everything. But the SDNY put in a letter that he was not fully forthcoming. He would not answer all their questions. So he's not – look, he's become a friend of mine, and I, I believe him, what he says now, but he's going to be a problematic witness. You have to be realistic about that.
0: So the book is not just about Donald Trump. The, the book, as the subtitle implies, How Powerful People Get Away With It, the full title of the book is Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It.
1: This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM.
0: Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. A new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
0: It's a book about Jeffrey Epstein. It's a book about Harvey Weinstein. It's a book about powerful people. And you say this, um, you say prosecutors require more proof more certainty and more layers of review and approval before they'll charge a boss. Prosecutors love to remind the world we do our jobs without fear or favor, but the fact is we do approach certain subjects with more fear than others. How come?
1: That is a fact, first of all. That is not an opinion by me um, because it's in the justice manual. It's in the very document that's a public document, you can Google it, that's binding on all federal prosecutors across the country. And it says that if you have a person who's a public official, if you have a person who's likely to draw widespread media coverage, meaning any celebrity, billionaire, boss of industry, then that case has to go up to higher and higher levels of review and approval. And I give examples of cases I was involved in. I'll tell you one quick one. I had a case where a fairly well-known major league baseball player got caught up in a gambling ring with the Gambino family. Uh, I I don't say the player's name uh, because we did not end up charging him. I was maybe a third or fourth year prosecutor at the time. If this person was not a famous baseball player, if he was just a regular guy, I would have made the decision myself. It would have been, nobody would have reviewed it. That's that. Because he was well-known and because an indictment would have put him on the front page of the New York post, I had to send word up to the deputy chief, the unit chief, the Deputy Criminal Division Chief, the Criminal Division Chief, Deputy U.S. Attorney. So five or six layers above me scrutinized this case and ultimately it was decided not to charge him. I think that was probably the right call on balance. But the fact is he got way more review and way more people had to approve if there was going to be an indictment. Now you ask, why is it? I don't mean to suggest this is necessarily corrupt. There's actually, there is a legitimate reason for it. If you mess up a prosecution of a high profile case it will damage your office's reputation for a long time. I point to Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, who botched several high-profile investigations as an example of that. But as a natural consequence, Michael, it's a benefit. It is harder to charge a, a famous, powerful boss than it is a normal person. Yeah, that's not going to give
0: folks listening comfort, though, because it's just going to reinforce the belief that, you know, rules for, for, what do they say, rules for me but not for thee.
1: Yeah, uh, that's reality. And and part of my hope in writing this book is to make people aware of these inequities so that people understand where they are. And ultimately, look, DOJ can change its policy. Congress can pass laws. Prosecutors can adjust the way they act. But my, my point here is to shine light on some of these inequities, the way that bosses exploit them and the way that sometimes prosecutors enable that.
0: Ellie a caller asked a question and I don't know the answer to it why or how I guess I should say can Alvin Bragg bring charges theoretically against Donald Trump relative to Stormy Daniel what's the statute of limitations in whatever the underlying
1: offense might be it's a great question uh, by the caller there and I, I have kicked this around with people I can only think of two possibilities and by the way these actual payments happened six and a half years ago. That makes me feel old because it, it doesn't feel like that. Right. long ago. But I had hair. Yeah. yeah. Well, not that long ago. Come on. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think there's only two possible ways that you can beat the statute of limitations. One is there's some argument that, that perhaps the statute of limitation was told was basically put on pause while Trump was president or during COVID. There was some legislation right. in New York state. The other is, There does look like there were some lingering payments, repayments of Michael Cohen made into 2018 because he got paid back in small chunks. And if that's the case, as a prosecutor, you can argue, well, 2018 takes us into the middle of 2023 or whatever plus five years is. So you can argue that until the scheme is fully complete. Until everyone's been repaid, you're still within the statute limitation. limitations.
0: When you say told, do you mean because you can't indict him while he's president, you put those four years on the clock? Right.
1: Exactly. That's actually an open legal question. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, I actually do not think that would prevail as a matter of law because. As I, I actually have a bit in the book about the history of this no indictment policy, and it's actually not as ironclad as people think. You know, people. Well, you say, say you
0: say it's you know, Ellie. You say it's
1: really not a no
0: indictment policy,
1: right? I say it is wrong to say DOJ cannot cannot right. indict yeah. the sitting president. The right way to say it is DOJ has for fifty years now decided that it, it is is best not to even try. Um, And if you look at the memos, and I dug into them a bit in the history of them, they're not legal memos. They're not, what does the law say? They're practical memos. They basically say, how the hell would our country function if we had a president under indictment, on trial, in a prison cell? Um, I think they're fascinating. I think they remind me of some interesting law school hypotheticals. But one of the arguments that people made with respect to Trump in the Mueller case, but it would apply here too, is, Because of that policy, while a president is sitting in office, the the statute of limitations is told, is put on hold. But that's never been tested in the courts. And I'm not sure the courts would agree, especially given that DOJ, it's DOJ's own decision not to indict uh, a sitting president.
0: Ellie Honig's book is called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. We're not giving it all away for free, but I have have one final (laughs) question. Take me inside the wire room at 26 fed what is it what's
1: going on so the wire room is where we monitor a wiretap so what you can do as a prosecutor it's really about the most potent investigative tool you can get is you can go to a federal judge you have to write out a whole affidavit and say we believe that there's going to be evidence of an ongoing crime discussed on this particular cell phone and so we need to listen live while it's happening now if you can get permission to do that What happens then is you have to set up a live monitoring station. It's basically – picture a massive floor of a – like a trading floor. It kind of looks like that, like if you've ever seen the trading floor at the the stock exchange, with just rows and rows of carols, uh, of, uh, of those individual desks with little walls between them, not full offices, where each one is a different set of FBI agents waiting to hear phone calls from a different kind of criminal so you could have a drug case here you could have a mafia case there maybe you have a politician maybe you have an insider trader there and it's this fascinating environment of long periods of boredom and you're usually there around the clock so everyone's eating horrible junk food and people are reading the sports page until that phone rings and when that phone rings it is an adrenaline burst because you run to the station you slap on headphones and now you're it's, its sort of a little bit of a voyeuristic thrill because now you're listening to these phone calls, which may well be criminal in real time. So it's this bizarre sort of exhaustion and fatigue mixed with bursts of adrenaline. The, the people um, who the are the room. people
0: who are there who are doing it are FBI agents obviously assigned to that case. In other words, there aren't yes. people whose sole job it is to monitor the wire for case after case after case.
1: So it varies. Some cases you will have the actual what we what we call the case agent, the main investigator. Right. But there are cases where that, that's they just don't have the bandwidth, and so you have either contractors or lower level uh, FBI employees who monitor, and and it's all recorded. It's not like you have yeah to, yeah The yeah. only option is to hear it in real time, Ellie. But there's I, times, especially if you yeah. I smell movie.
0: Like when you wrote about that <laughs> in the book, I was trying to picture what that look, Ellie. I, I have to tell you this like quickly, it. but I I was I was once in Qatar. Uh, this was on W's watch, and I was a guest of the Defense Department, and they took me on, I can say this now, they took me on a, a, a plane, we didn't leave the ground, but the plane had carols like that which you are discussing, and in it yeah. were were language experts who spoke different dialects of Arabic so that they mm-hmm. could fly over particular communities and eavesdrop on conversations. Oh and my when I goodness. Yeah, when I read about what uh, twenty six fed the wire room, I'm thinking like what a setting for for a movie that would make. Maybe maybe we will uh, collaborate on a project. I'll, I'll talk about the plane, and you'll talk about the what you saw. Ellie, the book is great, yeah. and I have to, I say this with uh, uh, with utmost respect. It could not be more timely. Like, my God, yes. the moon and the stars lined up for you. As I said, I'm reading it, and I'm reading the newspaper, and I'm thinking, like, here's the inside story of what's going on in the paper today.
1: Yeah, we got lucky. I really appreciate it, Michael. Thank you. By the way, can I just one more quick thing? I want yeah. to submit the first line of this book for UNTC's uh, consideration among the best first lines. Oh, boy, clubs. hold on. Oh, you value first oh, yeah. lines. Okay, so here, we,
0: here we go. Here we go. Frank Heidel... Okay. Frank Heidel had no idea that the beer he drank at Scarlet's Strip Club in Staten Island—you have me already—on a cool spring night in 1998 would be his last. <laughs> it, is, it is a great, it is a great opening line. <laughs> Ellie Honig, ladies Especially and gentlemen, interested. thank you, Ellie. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Michael. Take the care. book is called *Untouchable*. Uh, that is a great first line. That is a great, phenomenal. Uh, bested only TC by. Fire, Tits, and Sharks. God, I love it when you say that. I just love hearing T.C. That is the first line of talk, the novel.
1: Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program. Weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXMF.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.